Thank you for downloading this message from Roots Community Church. We pray that you are encouraged by the word. If you're looking for more information, please visit us at rccphoenix.com. The first uh, couple of weeks that we've gone through, we've done um, a couple of letter H's. There are four H's in the 4H series because, you know, well, we're kind of nifty. Well, we're not really nifty at all, but we just kind of lined it out that way. <clears throat> but the, the first week was the head. The second week was the heart. And this week, our third week on the, on the third H is this, the hands. The hands. It's the first line there, there in your notes. It's hands. And those hands, the acts of our hands, are going to represent the actions of our life. So what we're going to do today is we're going to read a passage of Scripture that I'm sure that you've heard before. And even if you haven't read it in this particular way, like you haven't taken the time to open up the Bible and read the Scripture, I'm sure you've, there's a high probability you've been able to hear this story before. And so even though it's familiar, I'm going to read it again in our hearing just so we have a fresh recollection of it in our heart as we go forward and as applies to what we're going to talk about here today. So it's Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. Let's read it. One day, an expert in religious law stood up to test Jesus by asking him this question. Teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus replied, what does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? The man answered, Well, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Right, Jesus told him. Do this and you will live. The man wanted to justify his actions. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied with a story. A Jewish man was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho, and he was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him up, and left him half dead beside the road. By chance, a priest came along, and when he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road and passed him by. A temple assistant, also called a Levite, walked over and looked at him lying there, but he also passed by on the other side. Then a despised Samaritan came along. And when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. Then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn where he took care of him. The next day, he handed the innkeeper two silver coins, telling him this, Take care of this man. If his bill runs higher than this, I'll pay you the next time I'm here. Now, which of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by the bandits, Jesus asked. The man replied, the one who showed him mercy. Then Jesus said, yes, now go and do the same. This expert in religious law is also in some other translations referred to as a lawyer. So the Bible doesn't specify what this lawyer's actions were. But the implication is they were lacking integrity. They were lacking integrity because he was trying to justify his actions to Jesus. Notice Jesus didn't bring up his actions. He didn't question anything that he had done. But he kind of knew and had some conviction and guilt about the things that he was doing. And so he tried to get a jump on it and justify these things to the Son of God. 
Seeing there's a great possibility here that these actions he was trying to justify were not good actions. But in this passage, Jesus has the lawyer repeat to him what the greatest commandments are. And in an absolutely brilliant move, Jesus puts the actions of the lawyer on trial and uses his own words as the testimony, testimony to instruct him. So it's important to note that the man who was beaten up and left by the side of the road was a Jew. It's very important to the story to understand that this man was a Jew. After both the priest and the temple assistant, or the Levite, pass up the man, they cross to the other side of the road and leave him there, a Samaritan stops to help him. Now, why is this a big deal, that the Samaritan would would come and help a Jew? Here's why it's a big deal. Because the Jews and Samaritans hated each other. Hated each other. There's one historian who tried to give us kind of a modern day comparison of what this hatred would be like in our context here today. And so he compared it, um, he compared it to um, uh, the, the, the hatred between the Serbs and the Muslims, the Catholics and the Protestants in Northern Ireland right after the Reformation, and even the feuding between American street gangs. Now, these aren't perfect analogies, but they're giving us an insight to this truth. The hatred between the Samaritans and Jews was real, and it ran deep. It went all the way back to before Israel even occupied Canaan, and it escalated from there. They were constantly at war with each other, and they even went so far as to torch each other's temples, and began warring over land. They torched each other's temples and warred over land. The historian wraps up his synopsis with with this statement that Jews and Samaritans both viewed each other with bigotry and prejudice. With bigotry and prejudice. They even for a period of time began referring to each other as animals, not even as people, that they looked so low on each other, they would refer to each other sometimes as dogs, not even really people, that they had that little respect and value for them in culture. So now, with all that in mind, understand what the Samaritan did. For the Samaritan to care for the Jew was a massive act that required him to dismiss his own national prejudices and care for his fellow man. With this story in the backdrop and fresh in our heart, I want to address three things that our hands should be doing. We should be using our hands for many things, but we're going to address three of them here today. Number one, if you're following along in your notes, number one, we need to have hands that serve others. Hands that serve others others. 1 Peter chapter 4 verses 10 and 11 says this, God has given each of you, if you're a believer in Christ, this is Peter writing to the church, so this is you if you're a believer in, in, in Jesus, you're a follower of Christ, God has given each of you a gift from his variety of spiritual gifts. Use them well to serve one another. Do you have the gift of speaking? then speak as though God himself were speaking through you. It's a big one. Do you have the gift of helping others? Do it with the strength and energy that God supplies. 
then everything you do will bring glory to God through Jesus Christ and glory, all glory and power to him forever and ever. Amen. And that underline, if you're, if you're looking on the notes, the underlying portion of that scripture is use them well to serve one another. That word serve in the original language of the Bible was diakunio. Diakunio. Now, this word has three definitions. Let's just review them really quickly. Number one is to minister. Pretty simple. Number two is to attend to anything that may serve another person's interest. And the third one is a word picture that I kind of want to focus on here just for a few moments. And it's to this, to wait a table and offer food and drink to the guest. Now, there are two kinds of people in the world. There are the people that act like me when I have the guys over to watch a football game or a basketball game. And there are the kind of people who act like my wife when she invites people to dinner. Let me give you the contrast between these two categories of people. If four or five guys come over to watch the the Phoenix Suns, we'll probably watch them play the Lakers, but with the Phoenix Suns game, or if you're going to come by and watch a football game or the Super Bowl or some big sporting event, not baseball, I will not be watching or falling asleep to baseball here at my house, but any other sport, we get together, four or five people, they get together and um, we we grill and we're going to watch the game. If I'm the one hosting the event and I'm grilling outside with uh, hamburgers and hot dogs, the, the spread is going to be um, paper plates, probably plastic cups. And now that I think about it, we probably won't even use cups because the Gatorade and the bottles of water will be in a cooler somewhere and just get it yourself. Um, there is a possibility that I may not even put out napkins because every five-year-old kid learns how to use the napkin that they wear every day, their shirt. And then you may or may not get a bowl for the chips that I bought from the store. You may just open them up and put your grimy hands in there, which is probably a bad idea with the coronavirus. So I'll probably put them in the bowl from going now forward. I've learned my lesson. That's kind of what it is with me. And if you're like some of my extended family, my relatives and my friends, like like my brother-in-law Chippy, He'll come through and he won't even use a plate. He'll just come and put a bun and all his stuff on that bun. And I'll take the burger right off the grill, put it on the bun, and he'll just eat it standing there next to me. No plate, napkin, or anything. Now, that's the first kind of people. The second kind of people are the people like my wife or even my either one of my sister-in-laws, Danielle or Jane. Now, all three of these ladies are beyond creative. They have this, this area that they operate in that's, <clears throat> that's wildly, wildly creative, and each of them do their own thing. But if you were coming to dinner and they were the host, I'll just use my wife as an example for right now. If Nina's the host and you're coming to dinner, there's a high probability that there's no paper or plastic anything. You're probably going to be greeted with plates that I may have never even seen before. They're kind of not just round plates, but they're kind of square with these rounded edges. And there's these glasses with, with napkins that are folded a certain way and, and silverware that's placed on either side of the, of the setting. And then they have things like, called table runners. Now, guys, if you're like me, I had no clue what a table runner was until I got married. It's this long piece of cloth that does absolutely nothing but sit in the middle of a table. Until I get married, I thought a table runner was like an old school Pentecostal person who came to dinner and kind of caught the spirit when they, in the middle of and run around the table. That was my definition of it, right? I didn't know what it was. And what, what my wife does is she goes to the store and she needs decor. Now, 
husbands, if you haven't had this experience yet, that means you've been only married for less than three weeks. But if your wife wants to go and buy decor, this can mean anything. Like if you go to the store and buy milk, there's 2%, 1% or whole milk, right? Pretty narrow category. If you want to go get um, a burger, then you can put probably ketchup, mayonnaise or mustard on it. It's narrow category. Decor is the biggest category in the world. My wife will go and just try to serve someone so well. She'll buy these centerpieces that go on the table. She'll, she'll buy these accent pieces. You know what? The entire front color of my home might be different before people come in because she wants to decorate and serve people well. Even in your notes, I put a picture of what it's like. This is not a table that she set, but this is something that her or my sister-in-laws would, um, uh, uh, they would set the table like this. It is immaculate. It is beautiful. Now, if you had a choice to come and watch me take hot dogs off the grill and shove them into my five-year-old nephew's mouth right with the tongs that we're serving the rest of the food with, or come to my, or come to my, um, my wife's spread, a hundred out of a hundred times, you would pick my wife's spread. Why? Because she did something that she is gifted and creative with unbelievably well with excellence to serve and show the love that she has for the people that are coming to our home for dinner. You'll notice here that um, Peter gives instructions that if we're going to use the gifts that we have to use them excellent, look at what he says. If you have the gift of speaking, then speak as though God himself were speaking through you. That is a level of excellence I don't know that I have ever or will ever attain. But he's saying to us, look, if you have this gift of speaking, do you have the gift of helping others? Give it everything you got in an effort to serve other people. <clears throat> you may be sitting here and going, well, he only listed two gifts. And that's right. He just used those as an example. But his first line is God has given each of you a gift from his great variety of spiritual gifts. What I'm trying to say to you is that if you don't have the gift of speaking or of helping others, then use the gift, the next line of your notes, use the gift God gave you to serve each other and then the world. See, the Good Samaritan stopped what he was doing, recognized there was a, he saw a need and served someone who had a need. <clears throat> Colossians chapter 3, verses 22 through 24 says this, Servants, in everything, obey those, um, those who are your masters on earth. Now, let me pause right here for a second. When it says servants and masters, this is not how we in our current day and our modern Western idea think of like slavery, like servants and masters. This is more like um, akin to um, an employer and an employee relationship. So servants or employees, in everything, obey those who are your masters or employers on earth. Not only with external service as those who merely please people, but with sincerity of heart because of your fear of the Lord. Whatever you do, whatever your task may be, work from the soul. That is, put your very best effort as something done for the Lord and not for man, knowing with all certainty that it is from the Lord, not from men, that you will receive the inheritance which is your greatest reward. Look at this last line in this scripture. It is the Lord Jesus Christ whom you actually serve. 
that's big. Why does that matter? Because if you're a painter, paint the message God has put on your heart. If you are a singer, sing the songs of God's goodness. If you are a writer, write the words to reflect the truth of God, His Son, and His Word. If you are a builder, build your business, your brand, or your structure with the utmost integrity. If you are a worker, work as if you are representing the Lord. Whatever it is that you are gifted by God to do, do it with utmost excellence in serving everyone else. Why? Because it is actually the Lord Jesus Christ who you are serving. We need to make sure that our hands are being used to serve other people. Number two, we need to have hands that care for the wounds of others. Hands that care for the wounds of others. Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan shows the character of God and how, and how he desires for his children, believers in Christ, to act. Now, there's a lot of people who would look at the Old Testament in the Bible and they kind of have a view, if they haven't really spent much time actually reading Scripture, they can sometimes have an incorrect view that in the Old Testament, God is this mean, ruling person who just wants to you know, smite everybody and then kind of lay down the law, and he's just really rigid and follow the rules guy. And then in the New Testament, he kind of transforms to become this kinder, gentler God who forgives and loves everybody. But that's not the case. If you go back and read all of the Old Testament in these accounts, what you'll find is that the character of our God is consistent all the way through. I'm going to just quickly read four scriptures from the Old Testament, then give you a glimpse of just how great uh, God's character is when it comes to loving and the loving the brokenhearted and binding up the wounds of those who are hurting. <clears throat> Psalms 143, He, God, heals the brokenhearted and bandages their wounds. Proverbs 6, 16 through 19, there are six things that the Lord hates. No, seven that he detests. Haughty eyes, which is arrogance. A lying tongue. Hands that kill the innocent. A heart that plots evil. Feast that ra- feet that race to do wrong. A false witness who pours out lies. And a person who swords, sows discord in a family. Isaiah 61, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me, for the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to, con- to comfort the brokenhearted, proclaim that captives will be released and prisoners will be freed. He has sent me to tell those who mourn that the time of the Lord's favor has come and with it the day of God's anger against their enemies. Jonah 4, uh, chapter 4, verses 2 is Jonah talking to God. I knew that you were a merciful and compassionate God, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. You are eager to turn back from destroying people. These are just four quick examples that show that the character of God, the loving heart of God, is spread all across Scripture, even the Old Testament. You have to remember that up until the point of this story where, that Jesus is telling about the Good Samaritan, none of the New Testament exists yet. All they have is the Old Testament. And he's relaying the character of God in this story, and he's given an example of God's character and the story in relation to the good Samaritan. 
The good Samaritan cared for the wounds of the man. So my question is, how can we use our hands to care for the others, other people's wounds? How can we do that? Some of you might be sitting there and go, well, in that story, the Samaritan like bandaged up all his wounds. He had oil, which they use as a healing agent. He had wine, which they use as a disinfecting agent. He had bandages and he knew what to do. I, I, I'm no doctor. I can't mend wounds. I don't know when stitches are necessary or, or just a Band-Aid or gauze. I don't know how to put all that on. I don't <clears throat> carry around a medical uh, a kit with me at all times. Right. Completely agree. You may go even further and say, man, this guy took him to an inn, a hotel, cared for him, stopped everything that was going on in his life and cared for this man and then paid for him to stay for, uh, several more nights in the hotel and paid someone else to make sure to come in and treat those wounds until the man was whole? And if, he, if you spent more than what you laid down on your credit card, let's say, I'll come back and pay all the difference for his well-being, for his care. I, I don't have money like that. What do you mean, man? I can't even do that. Completely understand. Many people are not in that position. But... Can we buy a bag of groceries for a family that's hurting financially? Can we be present with someone who is hurting from the loss of a friend or a relative? Can we clean the house of someone who is hurting physically from possibly being injured? Can we give a sandwich to a homeless person who is hurting from not having any work? Can we do any of those things or similar? You may go... Well, yeah, I mean, I can do those things, but ultimately it's just one little thing. It doesn't really fix the, the bigger problem. There's a bigger issue here, and I can't, take the bigger I can't take care of the bigger issue, so you're asking me just to basically do a little thing. Why would I even consider doing a little thing when I don't even know if it's going to matter that much? It, it doesn't solve the big problem. <clears throat> Let's read 1 John Chapter 3, verses 16 through 19. We as believers know what real love is because Jesus gave up his life for us. So we, ought, so we also ought to give up our lives for our brothers and sisters. If someone has enough money to live well and sees a brother or sister in need but shows no compassion... How can God's love be in that person? Dear children, let's not merely say that we love each other. Let us show the truth by our actions. Our actions will show that we belong to the truth so that we will be confident when we stand before God. You may not be able to solve the biggest need. But your obedience, an act of love, the act of your hands to care for the wounds of someone is hurt, that is hurting, no matter how small, is a reflection of the love of God that he has for humanity. It, it is an extension of that we as representatives of Christ, disciples of Christ, extend to anyone who might be wounded. It is something that we do to shine the light of the gospel in a dark place. These minimal acts of love and compassion for the wounds and needs of others show the love of Christ crosses all 
human barriers and seeks to shine the light of the gospel in dark, in dark places. Number three, we need to have hands that pick up and carry others. Pick up and carry others. Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 through 3. <clears throat> Dear brothers and sisters, if another believer is overcome by some sin, you who are godly should gently and humbly help that person back onto the right path. And be careful not to follow, fall into the same temptation yourself. Share each other's burdens and in this way obey the law of Christ. If you think you're too important to help someone, you are only fooling yourself. You are not that important. That, uh, that, that little phrase, share each other's burdens, if you've been in church for any length of time, you've probably heard this used from the kind of old King James version that says bear each other's burdens. You might be familiar with it uh, being said that way. But as I was reading through several commentaries this week, there's one in particular that, that looked at that phrase, bear one another's burdens, share one another's burdens, and gave a great definition for it that I want to share with us here today. <clears throat> so it's out of the Adam Clark biblical commentary. He says this, that, that bearing each other's burdens or sharing each other's burdens means have sympathy. Feel for each other. And consider the case of a distressed brother as your own. Man, I'm thinking back in my own life and wondering, have I really done that? Have, maybe I've had sympathy, but as, have I considered the case of a distressed brother as my very own? And that is convicting for me as someone who's trying to follow God myself. <clears throat> The church should be the example to the world of this kind of love. The church should be an example to the world of this kind of love. Here's what I mean. We as believers in Christ should look at people who are distressed and follow that example to bear one another's burdens, share one another's burdens, to consider the distressed condition of a brother or sister in Christ as my own. People who are not saved should see the way that the church cares for the people who are in the family of God and they should look with envy and say, that is what we need to be doing. Unfortunately, we've, we've dropped the ball on this and it's something that we can easily rectify now by making sure that the works of our hands pick up and carry other people. <clears throat> You'll notice that the Good Samaritan picked up and carried the man to a nearby safe facility to allow him to recover. You notice that the Good Samaritan didn't come by and go, Hey, you alright, bro? I'll send somebody to help you. He didn't say, Oh man, those gashes on your face and your arms and legs look really bad. You should get those looked at when you can. He didn't stay on his donkey and pass by. He realized he needed to get off, his, get off his high horse and get down to the ground level where this man was and tend to him 
And after tending to him, he picked him up from that position, put him on his donkey, and allowed him to ride, and he walked beside until he was at the place of safety and care. It's not until we get down on the ground with those who have suffered that we can, un- that we can really understand the strength it takes to try and stand from that fallen position. To understand the extenuating damage or of falling that far and that hard. To understand the idea of what repairing or surviving the damage will take. To understand how much time will be involved for recovery and what mental and emotional toll is being taken has been taken on those who are wounded. There are very few moments, maybe never in the course of the time I've been in ministry and maybe never ever again, that I will quote a politician in the middle of a message. But I heard a um, a statement from an African-American gentleman who's a senator, who's a believer in Christ. He was being interviewed this week by a Caucasian ministry director talking about all of the racial tension that's existing in our country. He asked him a question and and they went through scripture and he made a statement that so jumped out to me and applies to exactly where we are with with this point of picking up and carrying other people. He made this statement. It's hard to hate up close. It's hard to hate up close. When we look as people, as one who, who ultimately at some point in time, either in your life or currently in your life, have prejudice. That word prejudice means pre-judgment. When we have a pre-judgment against anyone, it typically creates distance. You'll hear people who, are, who, who have prejudices against a group of people, similar to what these Jews and Samaritans had. They will refer to the, whoever the, the, the people group is that they have a pre-judgment against as those people. That group of people. Them, they. There is a distance implied in their language that means that I'm going to just shotgun and blanket, make a blanket statement about everybody in this group that I don't like. Or this group that I have a prejudgment against. But when we realize that it's hard to hate up close, and we look at the example of the Good Samaritan who overcame all of that and went down to the man's level and got down there, when we look past those prejudgments and we go to a person and realize it's not them, that's Michael. It's not them, that's Stacy. That's not them, that's James. That's not them, that's Amy. And when you get past all of that garbage, the prejudgment, and go Take the risk to push past that and see people as Scripture tells us to see people. What we're going to find is a story, is a person, and all of those prejudgments will probably fall away. Helping others means getting up close, seeing all the little details, understand what really happened, and seeing things for what they really are, not to what they appear to be at our distance you got to get up close. Why? It's hard to hate up close. <clears throat> it's hard to hate 
when they have a name. It's hard to continue having your entrenched position when I listened this week to Michael's story of the gun held to his head in a cocked position while he slowly pulled out his identification and then wept after the encounter because his life was at risk. When we listen and we get involved and we try to get down on the ground level where someone who is wounded really is, we can find they're a person. We can find that all of this nonsense can fall off and we can deal directly with them. I want to wrap up the message today, but I want to, I want to tell a quick story that I read several years ago. <clears throat> and it's about the Queen of England, and she liked to come out of the royal palace, off the, the property there, and she liked early in the morning, right before sunrise, to, to walk through the city streets. She liked to go and look at the architecture and she liked to watch the sunrise over the hill and she looked at the trees and the, the green grass and the, just the lush um, uh, bushes that were around and she loved the nature that was involved in her walk and she loved smelling the flowers and <clears throat> just walking around before everyone started getting ready for the day. One day as she was walking, she's in England, and, and it's very common for storms to blow in very suddenly. And so she saw a storm blow in, it just started to drizzle, and she didn't think much about it. But very quickly, the storm was a downpour. <clears throat> she, she didn't know what to do and realized that she needed to get out of the rain. It was too heavy to continue to walk in. And so she saw a cottage off in the distance, and she made her way really quickly over there and stood on the porch of whoever owned this cottage, she didn't know. It was underneath an awning just to kind of get out of the rain. She waited a few moments for the, for the storm to pass, <clears throat> but it didn't. It got heavier and she realized, man, people are going to start looking for me because I've left the palace. I need to go back there before anyone starts to worry. And so reluctantly, she knocked on the door pretty early in the morning of this cottage. She didn't hear anything at first, and so she knocked again, and she could hear the, the anger of the man getting out of, out of bed, huffing and puffing as he was trying to find a robe to put around him early in the morning, and he was awakened out of his sleep by this knocking on the door, and he's, you can tell he's very angry walking. And he comes to the door and opens it, but he doesn't open it all the way. He only opens it maybe, uh, maybe an inch or two and says, what do you want? not even realizing who's on the porch. <clears throat> the queen says, I'm very sorry for disturbing you this early, sir. He's like, what do you want? I, I got caught in the storm while I was, while I was walking and I, I didn't have an umbrella. So what do you want? She said, I, I know that you probably have an umbrella around. Would you allow me to please borrow it so I can get home and I promise you I'll return it. This is why you woke me up? This is why you interrupted my sleep for an umbrella? Nah. So he goes, hold on a second. He goes to his mudroom and he's got more than a half dozen umbrellas of different sizes. <clears throat> and he reaches in and he can pick any of them, but he doesn't pick the good one. He picks the broken one. Tattered, bent up, ripped apart. 
And he goes back to the door and he opens the door just enough to ram the, the umbrella out the door and throw it on the ground in front of her. There, leave me alone. He slams the door forcefully, still not taking time to see who was on his porch. The queen says, uh, thank you, sir, and tries to shape out part of the umbrella to go over her head and make it back to the palace. <clears throat> the man was annoyed, but didn't really think of it anymore until the next day the storm had passed. It's a bright, sunshiny day, and he was there enjoying the day and looking out his window, but as he peered down the street, he saw the royal guard coming down his road. <clears throat> he thought, this is not something we see every day, not in my neighborhood. The royal guard's coming down here. I wonder what's going on. So he kind of got a little curious and excited and inquisitive, and so he went out back on that same porch <clears throat> and stood there and watched the guard come down the, the road and to his surprise, the royal guard stops right in front of his home. And the leader gets, uh, uh, starts walking towards him with his hands behind his back. He comes up to the man, and the man is surprised that they're there to talk to him. What do you mean? <clears throat> and, and, the, and the man says, good morning. Says, good morning. The, the, the leader of the royal guard says, yesterday... During the rainstorm, early in the morning, a woman came by your home. And confused, the man said, yes. <clears throat> said, when she knocked on the door, she asked you to borrow an umbrella, and she promised she would return it. Yes? I don't understand what that has to do with you. <clears throat> From behind his back, the guard pulled the broken, tattered, ripped-up umbrella and handed it back to the man and said, the Queen of England would like to thank you for your hospitality and note that she returned the umbrella to you just as she promised. The realization hit the man who owned the home. As he sheepishly took the umbrella back and looked at this tattered piece of garbage <clears throat> that he gave to the queen. He was embarrassed and just hung his head and didn't say anything, so the guard turned and walked back to his regiment and went back to the palace. The queen motioned to the, the leader of the guard and said, did you do what I requested? Did you return the umbrella? And he said, yes, ma'am. She asked him, did the man say anything before you left? He said, he didn't say anything directly to me, but as I turned, I heard him whisper under his breath this statement. Oh, had I only realized it was the queen, I would have given my best. Had I only known it was the queen, I would have given my best. Matt, what does that story have to do with the works of our hands? <clears throat> I want us to realize that the actions of our life, the works of our hands, have eternal consequences. And I want us as a church, as a body of believers, as the, the larger church of Christ, 
to be able to serve other people, to help with their wounds, to pick them up and carry them with a sense of purpose and excellence and a heart that says, I'm going to go all in, even though it's going to require effort from these hands, effort from the actions of my life. It's going to be inconvenient. I don't want us ever to look back like this man did and say, had I only known my actions meant so much to them. Had I only known that my words could, could heal such a hurt. Had I only known that my anger was eclipsing my compassion. Had I only known that my faith included my action. Had I only known these things, I would have given my best. Many people look around at the, the things that we do in church a lot, which is maybe volunteer for the children's ministry. You have no idea what that little life will become that you teach the principles of Scripture and the foundational stories of the Bible to. You have no idea, youth minister, youth volunteer, who that person is going to turn out to be, who that teenager who is sitting off in the corner, or maybe the one who's bright and bubbly, or maybe the one who just kind of uh, kind of fits in to go, and goes along just to kind of to, to not rock the boat. You have no idea who those people are going to become. There is no way that we can know who the people are who are sitting on the, in the seats or the pews of our churches. We have no idea who God, is, who God has designed them to be. So with that effort, every single person, regardless of what they look like, what they sound like, what they act like, is worthy of giving our best. The actions of our life, the, the works of our hands, we, they are worth us giving that to them. Because like we read earlier, it's actually the same way of us giving to Christ himself. Using these hands to pick up a device and our thumbs to put out a message on social media is not action. Action is using our hands to serve others, to care for the needs of others, and to carry others when they truly need to be carried. We have to put these words into actions to the works of our hands. If we only use our hands, the works of our hands, our actions, to serve our own interest, to line our own, park, our own pockets, to build monuments to our own achievements, to applaud our own successes, and to hold on to any form of hatred, then our hands are bound by the very weeds we should be removing from the garden of our actions. They're bound by the same weeds that we need to pull up. Remember the, the, the pretense of this series. Remember what we're after here. To look at the, the area of our head, the area of our heart, and today the area of our hands, the actions of our life, and say, am I doing any action? Am I allowing any action to remain in my life that is opposite of God, opposite of His command, opposite of Scripture, that does not honor His sacrifice for us on the cross? Is there anything that is in our hands? Are there, are there any weeds growing that will choke out the life and the truth of God's word from our actions? 
And if there are, we need to pull those things up by the root forcefully, vigorously. And if we can't, we ask the Holy Spirit of God to show us these things that need to be removed and to help us remove them. Our actions matter. What we do matters beyond what we say. We have to put those things that we're saying into the works of our hands. Matt, if we do that, will it fix our country? I don't know. But I do know it'll fix our churches. I do know it'll fix the individuals who call themselves Christians and disciples of Christ if we would just begin ignoring all the prejudgments that we have about other believers in Christ. I don't like them. This guy's too, too tall. This guy's too chubby. That would be me. The, this guy is too, <clears throat> is, is, tells bad jokes. <laughs> right? This guy is, is, is trying to be a wise guy all the time. This one's too quiet. And we, whatever <clears throat> the description is, the prejudgment that we have, we have to let let that go, my friends. I am begging us. I am, if I could stay on the camera, I'd get on my knees and beg you to say, put those things into action. Because no one knows what's truly in our heart because what comes out of our heart leads to the works of our hands. <clears throat> Notice one last thing about the, the parable of the Good Samaritan that Jesus didn't allow the Samaritan in the story to have any qualifiers. Jesus didn't say, the Samaritan looked to see who the man was, what his nationality was, and if his prejudices allowed him to act on his behalf. No. The care for the human being overrode the opinions that have saddled the Samaritan their whole life. What we have to do is go back to the first book and the first chapter of the Bible, Genesis 1, and realize that God created man in His image, Imago Dei. In His image, every man, every woman, every human being has intrinsic value and worth past our preconceptions, and it's hard to hate when we get up close. So my friends, get up close. There was a man who walked down a beach and there was hundreds of thousands of starfish that had washed up on the shore and weren't able to get back into the water and were going to die. And so he, he walked and picked up one of them and threw it as hard as he could and far as he could back into the water. Took a couple more steps, picked up another starfish and flung it into the water as far as he could. And he did this every few feet. He would just stop and pick one up. One that was in his path, he'd pick it up and throw it back into the water to try to help it survive. There were some people that were watching him from a distance and they came up close to him and said, Sir, what are you doing? He goes, Man, these starfish are going to die if they don't get back in the water, so I'm just flinging them back in the water. And they said, Well, you can't possibly help all of them. There's hundreds of thousands of these things on the shore. How, how are you going to make it? How is it going to make a difference? And the man bent down and picked up the one that was at his feet and said, it makes a difference to this one. Push it back in the water. He reached down and said, it makes a difference to this one. And threw it back in the water. He picked up another one. It makes a difference to this one. And he threw it back in the water. I had a friend of mine tell me one time when we were young in ministry, he said, he goes, Matt, I have been relieved of the burden 
and the, and the false belief that I have to win the world for Christ. And when he said that, it, it took my legalistic church mind, my youth camp youth group mind, and kind of just put a cramp on it. And I thought, what do you mean you're relieved of the burden and responsibility to win the world? He goes, I can't win the whole world. I can't do it. I'm one man, but I can reach the people in my world. My friends, I'm not asking you to win the entire world. I'm not asking you to go out there and say, what are we going to do to fix all of this problem? Because when this problem goes away, there'll be another one. When this problem goes away, there'll be another one. There will always be problems as long as humanity exists apart from God. But you and me as believers in Christ, we can go through our life and go, I can't fix everything, but I can make a difference here. I can make a difference here. I can make a difference here. I can use the works of these hands, the actions of my life to back up this gospel that I preach and I can make a difference in the life of one. And when you do that, it will potentially have eternal significance. Think about that. Matt, I can't save everybody at my job. There's 1,800 people that work there. Right. Who's the person sitting in your cubicle? Who's the person you sit in the lunchroom next to? Who's the person who you have a relationship with, a common ground in your class? Who are those people? Regardless what they look like, what they sound like, what they talk like, throw all that garbage away and look at them as Imago Dei, image bearers of God and make a difference in that life. As believers in Christ, I want to encourage us, let us use our hands to remove the weeds growing in the area of our actions and then turn to the kingdom-minded business of serving others over ourselves.